Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Welcome to Model Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. Basically what we're all thinking about, but probably not talking enough about. Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, boy, girl, or anything in between. This is a show about all of you for all of us. So this is it. Our first episode. We're finally here. I can't believe it. I know. But what's funny is that this isn't the first time we're recording this podcast. This is like... Oh my God, Sharon. I I feel like we're talking to each other every day. My (laughs) wife is like jealous. You are my new... And I'm not going to say my new husband because, you know, but you're definitely my podcast husband. (laughs) You're my podcast pal. Let's keep it my platonic podcast pal. Fine. Here I am trying to trying to get us to the altar. And you're absolutely right. You're my podcast pal. Podcast pal. (laughs) We're like Thelma and Louise driving off a cliff. (laughs) It's been so much fun, though. It's really like this. This whole thing has taken off in a way that I never expected it to. Yeah, I mean... We've spoken to a lot of really interesting people. And I think this is our origin episode. It's very comic booky, so I like that that term. Mm-hmm. The first thing you, the listeners, should be listening to to kind of understand what we're doing. I don't know, Sharon. So what is the show about? Tell me, please. Well, we say in the intro that it's about that we have conversations with really interesting people about work and life through the lens of race and gender. That's what, those are the exact words we use, but what we've started to learn is that it's just so much more than that. It's really about getting to know people and getting to know their backgrounds. And we actually go pretty deep. We start to have conversations about things that people are thinking, that we're all thinking, but we're just not talking enough about. Yeah. I feel like that was the pitch. I remember it was a few months ago when I called you. I think you were riding the bus and I kind of just like pitched this crazy idea of like, hey, you want to talk to brown people or other non, <laughs> non-brown non people? And I was actually surprised how quickly you said yes. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think I was like running from one meeting to another. You had given me a call and like, you know, my friends never call me anymore. I just, I live on text and, and yeah, Slack messages. Well, no, it's Slack. It's like, you know, it's everything but a phone call. So when my phone rings, it's usually something important. So I saw your name, I picked it up and you, you had, you had this idea and I was like, uh, yeah, sure. Totally. I'm in. (laughs) And that's kind of because I've known you for a long time and I've known that whenever you start something, you finish it. And I knew that we were going to be here one day recording our origin episode for our first, uh, series, our first season that's about to launch. Well, so, okay. 
I guess it's worth telling people that we are old because we've known each other. I mean, you, I met you my first year on the job. I don't know if you had just started, but that's like almost 20 years ago, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still friends, believe it or not. Debatable, (laughs) debatable with you. All right. So I don't think our guests know who we really are. So I want to tell everyone a little bit about my pal, Sharon, um, my co-hostess with The Mostess. Um, So Sharon is a native New Yorker. She is Chinese American. She is a brand agency entrepreneur. She's kind of a big deal. Like you, you can literally, she's on the internet. She's important. More importantly, more importantly, you are a great mom to what I would call two Caribbean debonair boys. And um, they're hilarious the few times I've gotten to talk superheroes with them. But more importantly, I'm no more importantly, a fun fact is you have been to more luxury resorts than me. I I mean, that's not a really tall bar, but you have. Yeah, that's true. right? Yes, all of it's true. The luxury resort thing is kind of because it was work-related. I did work in luxury travel for like five years. So You're fancy, you're fancy. But not all of those were like, you know, fancy vacation trips. Sometimes they were photo shoots and meetings to be had, but um, that's all true. And you, Raman, you're pretty interesting as well. And so I'd love to tell our listeners about you. You were born in Alabama, which to me is like a foreign land. You're Indian American. And you're a recovering marketer, as you call yourself, which I find to be very I'm hilarious. I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to get out. <laughs> but I won't let you out because technically, I don't know if podcasting and marketing are the same, but it's definitely related. And you also have a very cute person at home, your wife, of course, but then there's also your daughter. So you have a half Chinese four-year-old toddler, and I've been able to meet her a couple of times as well. Over When she runs in on recordings. Yeah. 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 And she's so much fun. Um, and although I have been to very upscale, beautiful luxury resorts, you've actually traveled to many more places than I have. And I know every year I would get a postcard from you and was always, you know, you and your wife, well, your, she was your girlfriend at the time in some amazing, amazing place. So I think you've probably hung out with more penguins and Bedouins than I have for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, fruit roll-ups in a tent in the desert. That's, uh, that's how we relax. I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm over that yet. Yeah. Gotta get back to it. So what is this show about to you, Raman? How would you describe it? Um, it? You know, the inspiration or the seed for this, before I even knew I wanted to record a podcast, it, it starts way back when in 2008, right? Like maybe 2007, 2008, like the run up to Obama being elected. Um, and I hate to invoke his name, but because a lot of our guests do too, it's kind of interesting. But there was other stuff going on in the country, right? Um, there were some really nasty immigration laws being passed in Arizona and Alabama. My folks live in Alabama, and um, I used to live in the Midwest. And I had this really, really close friend, and um, he's a little right of center. And I'm back then, I was left of center. I'm pretty further out more now. Um, but we got into this debate about why does this matter or does this not? And he didn't think it mattered. And then I told him the story about my dad. I was like, look, this law, if my dad, a brown man in Alabama, he goes out to the gym and forgets his wallet, he doesn't get a ticket. He gets arrested. And wow. when, I, when I told him that story, he was like, oh, I never thought about it from that perspective. Yeah. And that, that was the moment. That was like, okay, what solves these problems is conversations. It's understanding where other people are coming from. And some of the conversations we have with our guests, I hear stuff that make me pause and think about, oh man, as a male at work or as as a brown person at work or whatever, um, 
it makes me think about other people's perspective. It creates like this empathy. Yeah. And that's what I'm going. That's that's what I want us to go for. That's what I want people to take away from listening to the show. Whatever color you are, whatever color or sexuality or gender that the guest is, I think if if you hear someone else's truth, it makes you understand the world yeah. a little bit better. Yeah, I think one decision that you and I made in the beginning as we were coming up with the guest list was this shouldn't just be about Asians, even though you and I are both Asian. This shouldn't even just be about ethnic minority. This should be people who are approaching life with their own point of view and who have either overcome a scenario, who have encountered any kind of challenges and not just like prejudice or anything like that, but just challenges who have overcome things. And we sort of made a a checkpoint that people had to be successful is what I called it. But I think what I'm learning is that yes, everyone's successful who's on our show, but passionate about something. Yeah. It's like the idea of model minorities is like this weird term. I think that came up in the eighties meant to pit, you know, races against each other, frankly, if mm-hmm. you look at the origins and we debate with one of our guests about that, actually, there's a really good debate with a reporter about that. But the idea of a model, the, the word model is like, yeah, as my uncle used to say, if you're going to do something, just do it really well. And yeah. the people we talk to are just like leaning in regardless of their background of their origin, whatever it's like, they're doing it. And I think that those are the people we've been seeking out for the show and we want to continue to hear from. Yeah. And I think some of those best stories are actually from people who maybe weren't always model, either minority or majority, right? Like they've actually had experiences or were on a trajectory to maybe go off of what the straight and narrow would have been and um, are now doing their thing in their own way. So it's been fascinating. Yeah. So let's, let's give folks a preview of what we heard from the folks that we got to talk to. I feel like the biggest issue that I think about or the first issue that comes to mind when I think about model minority is that there is a model minority, that there is a certain perspective or a certain approach you should take to the way you live your life, but there isn't. I mean, if we just look around, if we see in media, we probably don't see ourselves reflected very often, but just because we don't see ourselves in certain positions or roles or living with families or this or that, it doesn't mean we can't live our lives the way we want to live them. I'm sure you can relate to this where it's like society or your parents brainwashes you to achieve a certain thing like that title or like become a doctor or get that corner office or become like whatever. And so I thought I was chasing these things that, you know, not through my parents, but sort of like what is cool. Once I had that, I realized it wasn't made for me. I wasn't, it was something that every creative fantasizes about. But once I had it, I was like, whoa, this is not what I imagined it was going to be. And I'm going to throw everything away and start something and try a few different things to find what really fits my personality. If all you're doing is saying, I'm not part of the problem, I guarantee you you're part of the problem because it's going to, the systems are built to reinforce it along the way. These are things like our legal system, which at one time said only white people could be citizens, or it could be voting legacies where it's a hundred years now only that women would be able to vote, right? There are all these systems set up to create inequity. And if we're not actively working to identify them and change them, then we might say, well, I'm not that way, but we very much are. We collude. You know, growing up in Jersey City, you witness a lot that you wouldn't witness in other other, um, places. And so, you know, homelessness being one of the bigger things, Um, witnessing, you know, I honestly, (laughs) if we're keeping it real, bro, I can't, I can no longer tell the difference between um, a firecracker and a gunshot because the area that I lived in was very crime ridden. 
in terms of like it was drug infested and, and things like that. Like my next door neighbor was a drug dealer. So and I, I didn't learn that until later on in life. I was always wondering, like, why is why are different people always going into that house? Like, it's never the same person. And then I realized my, my father looked at me like, really, Lex? You can't put two together? Come on, re- think real hard. I mean, I felt ashamed uh, for being Black. To this day, there's certain times where you kind of, that, that sort of comes to you. But as you get older, you kind of deal with that. As a child, yeah, I, I certainly felt ashamed. Uh, you get made fun of. You, you're in a different country it's a different culture you don't have family here it's you know and then you don't really have your accents different so you don't have the, the quick comebacks and so forth so yeah definitely definitely felt the shame definitely there were definitely some nights uh, some days i'd get home just feeling down and so forth i wouldn't really tell my mom about it because she didn't really care um but you know yeah walking to my first day at school was probably the most terrifying day ever for me because I didn't know anybody. I didn't speak the language. And it, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my friends because I just kind of like I went on vacation and never came back. When I got into the elevator, she looked at me and started going, hi, hi, hi. And I'm just like, oh, she's crazy. Great. But she was so enthusiastic about it. It wasn't malicious. I think that was just her deformed way of thinking. And she started asking me where I was from. And, you know, I don't really want to entertain her because, like, the fuck, you know. (laughs) But, I, you know, I said, let's make a game out of this. I said, where do you think I'm from? And she said, Japan. I said, oh, no, that's not right. Yeah. And then she said, China. And I said, well, yes, but that's obvious, isn't it? That's rather easy. Where in China do you think I'm from? And so I tried to see, you know, just kind of string her along that way. And basically, and then it was her stop. And then she had to get off. I said, I'm sorry. You just don't know. And that was kind of it. I'm American as well. So I don't like when people try to say, you know, well, you know, are you Jamaican? Are you American? No, I'm I'm both. And I'm 100% Jamaican. And I'm 100% American. Those were some really great conversations. I can't wait for people to dig in and hear all of them when they're listening to the show. Yeah, um, you know, what I really like about what we're doing here is we're going really deep. Kind of interviewee, but like we go off the rails really fast and (laughs) uncover some people might cry, Um, you know, but we uncovered a lot of just interesting things, not just about our guests, but even ourselves. Yeah, when we have made people cry, haven't we? We've done that. We found some deep, dark secrets. and That's not something to be proud of. <laughs> well, I mean, in a good way. People have cried. No one's cried because we were mean to them. <laughs> what are you going to do after the show every night? <laughs> uh, so what are some things that we've learned about our guests? And, and what are some interesting things that you've even learned about yourself? Like what, what are we going to learn about you, Remen? Uh, I'm going to deflect that. I'm going to pass it back to you. Okay. Because... I think you're more interesting because um, you grew up in Chinatown. Yeah. New York City, Chinatown, arguably the most Chinese place in the country. Yep. Some would argue Toronto, Chinatown's more Chinese, but you know, whatever. But I've been there. I, I, I think, I actually think statistically, I believe LA, Chinatown might be more densely populated, but I'm not sure about that. Don't quote me on that. But yes, go ahead. <laughs> you grew up in the thick of it. Like, what was it like being a little girl in Chinatown, in New York City, in I'm not going to say what year you grew up in because we're old, but you know, yeah, we are that time when the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was popular. It was, uh, I do love that show. It's interesting. So I grew up, I didn't grow up in, in Chinatown. I grew up around Chinatown, but I definitely went to school in Chinatown. And so even though I'm Chinese American, I 
my, my elementary school was about 98% Chinese because it was in the middle of Chinatown. Um, so I didn't even know I was a minority, honestly. And the irony is I would watch television and watch movies and growing up when we did, there was no, there was no real ethnic diversity in any of that. So I would watch TV and see blonde haired, blue eyed girls on television. And I thought I would be like them. All the Barbie dolls at the time had blonde hair and blue eyes as well. That was just kind of the way it was, even though everybody around me was culturally and ethnically the same as me. That was elementary school. Junior high was a little more diverse. High school was also heavily Asian populated. So it wasn't until I grew up and was an adult and uh, working full-time that it became very apparent that I was definitely a minority, not just because I was Asian, but because I was female as well. So I kind of had, had this like double minority moment and realization that really there was almost nobody around that was also Asian and female in my field, which is always advertising and marketing. And certainly it was very difficult for me to find mentors in my space that looked like me. So that was interesting. Just kind of, you know, kind of yeah. thinking you're the majority, even though you're not. And then it being really clear later on in life. But for you in Alabama, I've got to imagine you guys were probably one of the few Indian American families in your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Um, believe it or not, there, there are pockets of really big Indian communities. Um, the town I grew up in, not so much. There's actually another town in Alabama, um, Huntsville, because of like the defense industry, um, NASA, all that stuff. There's a ton of Indian families. And some of my parents' best friends live there. And we would go visit them. And I'd be just surrounded by Indian people. Like, this is really weird. But the town I grew up in, my parents were one of like the first 10 or 15 families. And so my entire childhood, there were literally only 10 or 15 Indian families. And every other weekend, you know, we'd go do dinner parties, which is just like potlucks where the men would go talk about cricket and politics and the women would go listen to songs and all the kids would cram into someone's room and play Nintendo. But that was my exposure to Indian people. And that was it. Uh, you know, in Temple, maybe once a month, like we rented out space at a Unitarian church. So I didn't have, I had an Indian identity, right? My parents listened to Indian music at home. We ate and rice almost every night. Yeah. But when you went to school, that was the world. And even like, I didn't grow up with a lot of Hindi and Punjabi because my parents are so important to acclimate and assimilate. And growing up in Alabama, like there's a lot of stereotypes. It was just the suburbs. But now that I've left and I think about what it was like, or even when I go back now and I go about once or twice a year to see my folks who are still there, um, I notice things that I didn't notice before, right? So it's, look, it's not like the 60s. It's not Jim Crow, but there is there is a little bit of something still going on there. And I didn't even know I was experiencing some of it. I mean, there were a few pretty terrible, pretty harrowing moments in my life down there. But, and I do think they defined my perspective and my willingness and desire to get out. Um, but I think part of my identity is shaped by knowing I was an other, knowing, because yeah. I met, I met so many Indian American kids, Chinese American kids who grew up in these massive communities. You're one of them, right? And we, we compare notes and it was a very, I have Indian American friends who still primarily only hang out with Indian Americans. I married a Chinese American yeah. girl and has nothing to do with her being Chinese American. It has something to do with, she has the exact same scenario. She didn't grow up around a lot of Chinese Americans um, in Canada or in the States when she grew up. And so, I don't know. I, mean, uh, I want to flip it back to you. So like, what did your parents want you to be? Like, cause that's, there's some pretty stereotypical stuff there, right? I bet if you put money on it, you could guess. 
They wanted me Doc- to be a, yeah, go a ahead. doctor. Definitely a doctor. And I thought I wanted Same. to be a doctor. Honestly, yeah. I was pre-med going into college. Like my whole, my whole teenage life, uh, uh, Doogie Howser was on television at the time. Do you remember that show? Oh my God. Neil Patrick <laughs> Harris. Yeah. NPH. I wanted to be like NPH. And then I was pre-med in college and I actually majored in psychology. So even though I wasn't sure if I wanted to be like a medical, medical doctor. You just wanted to mess with people's minds. I get it. I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to screw Classic with people's minds. girl. Mm -hmm. (laughs) exactly exactly runs deep (laughs) runs real deep and it wasn't until probably like my last year of school that i was like i don't think i want to do this i actually think that maybe i want to work in marketing and advertising which also has to do with screwing with people's heads (laughs) in a different way (laughs) for money Uh, right exactly sell more shampoo to sell more shampoo and get them to fall in love with brands and things of that nature. But I was, I bought into that story and it was either a doctor or a lawyer. And so I chose doctor, but that didn't happen. How about you? Yeah, same, you know, and and it's funny. I asked my dad's an architect and I asked him, I, I was really into art and computers. I remember 15, 16 year old me sitting around the table and they're like, yep, you're going to go to pre-med. And I was like, why? Like, oh, I want to do art. How about architecture? Why'd you become an architect? Dad? And he's like, well, because I didn't get into med school. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and so literally, um, I wound up doing engineering because I got a, a scholarship to do computer engineering because playing with computers, right? And I was like, well, computers are going to be big. So I did that. But the whole way through, my dad was like, so getting ready for the MCAT? I'm like, no, I'm digging this engineering thing, like programming and whatever. But even that, I discovered as I was wrapping up like senior design, like I could make the A's, like, you know, model minority stuff, right? I did really well, studied really hard. Um, but I didn't love it like some of the kids I was going to school with. And so I kind of kicked the can down the road, traveled overseas a little bit, uh, went back to business school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Still thought I'd go be like a consultant because you know, kind of, again, model minority sort of stuff. And right. it just, at, because on the side, literally, I, I kid you not, on the side for um, backpacking money and I call it beer and travel money, but I didn't drink much back then. I did web and graphic design just for cash on the side. And this massive corporation who, world's biggest advertiser, saw that on my resume. I was like, oh, why don't you come into a marketing role? So I didn't even know marketing was a thing. Yeah, Um, I thought the company sounded like a law firm. And I was just like, sure, why not? And that got me to the Midwest and got me to this big multinational conglomerate where I could hang and work with people from all over the world. And it scratched the itch, I think, more the conversations with different people that you talk about the psychology of marketing, that was more interesting communication. Um, and then, you know, just kind of got enamored with tech and fell into digital. And I, I think as I get older, I, I care less about that, though. I, I care more about human connections. That's why we're having this conversation. Yeah. It's been a really circuitous path. And my parents haven't understood what I've done the entire time. They just they're like, well, you're doing well. And you seem happy. <laughs> and that's like not who my parents were <laughs> growing up, you know? And now as a parent, you know, you just want what's best for your kids. I, I definitely relate to that. Yeah. Um, okay. So last question. Did they want you to marry a Chinese boy? Definitely. Your mom and dad? Definitely. Yeah. How'd that work out for you? Just like it, it, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked out. It worked um, out. Just no, it worked. It, it worked out better, actually. So, and, but just what's ir- ironic about that is just like how I thought I wanted to be a doctor because my parents wanted me to be a doctor. I thought I wanted to marry a Chinese boy. 
I really did. Up until I met my husband, who is not a Chinese man, he is a Caribbean American black male. I thought I was going to marry a Chinese guy. Like actually, right before I met my husband, I was, you know, dating around, meeting new people, and I had a set of criteria, and one of them was that they that this guy had to be Chinese. Um, and so when I met my husband, I kind of didn't expect us to get married. I just thought he was going to be like, you know, someone fun and interesting to hang out with. And then lo and behold, we fell in love and now we have two kids and we've been together for like 10 years. But that was a big, that was a big thing. Telling my parents that I was dating a black guy. Huge. Yeah. Usually doesn't go for well with Asian parents. Mm -mm. (laughs) Did not, at the beginning, didn't go too well. I have to say they love him now. So everything ended up fine, but it was actually really eye-opening for me because my parents have always been supportive of many of my decisions, you know, and I've always, I really, I have to say, I think I fit the model minority bill, right? Like got really good grades in school, went to a good college, you know, never, never got in trouble with the law, all of those things. And bringing home a black guy was one of the first things that I did where they were like, where's this coming from? (laughs) Who? Who are you? First, it's marketing. Now a black guy. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I think, you know, to our, to our parents' credit, and I, I think more about this now being a parent to a young kid, is you do have, I, I try literally to not have expectations of my kid other than just be a good person, work hard, perseverance, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But back then, you know, the way our parents came over um, or the way our parents survived was there was a path. There was a set of things that had a higher probability of success. Just leave it at that, right? And so they set that expectation as, but as our parents have been confronted with a different set of decisions that their children like us have made, they're like, well, we taught you well, you're making a sound decision. I just don't understand it, but I accept it. And I can't say that about all my friends' parents. Like some have been more conservative about their reaction to the different decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, uh. And how about you? How's, how's your Indian wife doing? Yeah. <laughs> she's she's making me a chapati right now. Um <laughs> it's I dated Indian girls. I thought like you, I thought I wanted to date Indian girl. I thought, yeah, that's who I'm gonna marry. And some of those ones I was like, yeah. And if anything has taught me that it's all about who you actually are inside more than your the color of your skin, right? right. Like yep. it's yeah, it's uh, the Indian girls didn't work out. It, I'm just going to say it, but look, white girls didn't work out either. And I didn't marry my wife because I had a thing for a Chinese girl. I had a thing mm-hmm. for the girl that I met and that I became friends with. Right. And um, we have a lot of the same upbringings of the way our parents came over, um, a little bit of like fleeing persecution. My mom was, you know, born in Africa, Indian born in Africa, raised in England. And my wife's mom was Chinese born in Jamaica and fled because it got really dangerous in the Caribbean for Chinese people. And um, so we have a similar story. And I think that story isn't what ties us together. It's the sensibilities that came out of the story from our parents, right? Yeah. Um, Of being an other, not growing up around a lot of Indian people or a lot of Chinese people. And it just works, you know? Um, Yeah. So Yeah, I think same for me. I think a lot of... A few things. One is my husband's parents are immigrants. So a lot of those same, like you're saying, the same sensibilities, the The generational thing, yeah, generational thing, but also um, sacrificing for your children, right? Making sure that they're well-educated, leveraging that for better opportunities. Those are all things that my in-laws 
believed in and that they instilled in their own children. And so my husband comes to our partnership with that exact same belief. And it's really kind of astounding to me sometimes because I would expect that there would be more differences between us just because of our cultural backgrounds. But instead, I think marrying someone outside of the race and marrying someone who does come from a different culture has made me realize how how connected we are and, and how much in common we have. And I think now being a parent and raising children in a mixed race household and kind of passing down those same values and beliefs has also kind of empowered that, that, that realization that deep down inside, we're just, we all are so connected and all are the same. And that's sort of the premise of our show, isn't it? So, well, do we need to do the show? I feel like we just solved everything. Yeah, I think we have. All I right. think we have. We're good. So I think it's time for speed round now. We typically do this thing called speed round at the end of all our episodes with our really important model minority guests. Um, yep. And I like to think you got to know Sharon and I a little bit more now. So one of the first things I, and I, damn, I don't want to do this because it kind of telegraphs to all of our guests what they're going to be. But uh, <laughs> Sharon. Yes. Running. Tell me something about you that no one else knows. <sighs> that no one else knows. Uh, that not, oh, no, no, no. How about that people are surprised to hear from you about that, that. That you do. I don't know why this came to mind first. This is not who I am anymore. But um, when I was in my middle school years, I used to shoplift for fun. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> you were, hang on. You were no longer a model minority. You're no, out of club. Not I'm sorry. At all. I'm actually anti anti model minority. Um, and it was not. I mean, nothing big. Like I wasn't taking like you know. DVD players or whatever was the most expensive thing back in the day. But it was like little stuff like lip gloss or, you know, and more for the fun of it, being able to get away with it than to actually steal something expensive. Tell me something you've stolen. So lip gloss, give me another one. What's, what's the be- what's the best get? What's the best get that you got? I kind of used to just have a thing. Like I used to go into the body shop and literally just take like makeup out of there. Like just like literally like lip gloss or like maybe some like nail polish stuff. But you know, when you're 13, that's kind of what you want. And so I didn't really have an interest in anything else. However you get your kick, Sharon. Exactly. Exactly. Now you know, now you know who I really am. Um, I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed. Do I get to answer that one? Oh yeah. You want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to ask? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Sh- Sharon, I was totally being an Indian parent to you. That's why I was being disappointed. In you. <laughs> <laughs> I was judging you with my eyes. Exactly. Uh, Steal it across the, the sound waves. So what? what? I, have, I have to reveal something? Yes. What's one uh, thing about you that no one expects? I mean, the one, the first one that came to me, obviously you know me. And um, I have a spreadsheet for everything. Oh my God. Yeah, you do. That's true. But see, people know that about you. No, they don't know. My friends know that my listener or listeners don't. No, but I told you something that even my friends don't know about me. I mean, that's like, you know, I don't go around saying, guess what? I used to shoplift when I was in eighth grade. Well, it sucks to be you, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I, I'm like such an open book about everything. I don't. Um, I'm going to mention something. I hate. Oh, I got one. I hate Cal Penn. I hate Cal Penn. You do? <gasps> that's yeah. shocking. 
Sorry, I'm sorry, brother. You can't come on the show. Or you gotta prove me wrong. No, I don't know what it is. You know, I think we're all allowed the same way, you know, you have like with your, your spouse or your partner, the person, like if you got to sleep with them, you could like, I have that about people I hate. Like there's just people I unconditionally hate. And I don't know why I'm a bad person and I'm a good person, but it's like, that's like the piece of darkness. There's like three people in this world. I'm not going to say who the other two are. Um, save that for another podcast and another pandemic podcast, but I don't like Cal Penn and I should, he worked for Obama. I love Obama. Yeah, um, you really should. <laughs> no, I can't. I won't. I okay. hate him. That's Cal Penn. Fair. Come on the That's show, fair. Cal. Come on the show, Cal. Yeah, he won't anymore. Come on. I don't expect him to. What, um, you know, we have this one question where we ask about like ethnic mommy food, but yeah. no, um, in the pandemic, the last two weeks where shit's gotten real, Sharon, mm-hmm. what's been like the meal or the food that you've had that's just been like comfort food right now? I you like actually that. ate it. You actually ate it. You actually got to eat it. I ate it. Well, this is one that I ate and I made, which is rare because I don't do a lot of cooking anymore. But over the weekend, I had some time. I decided I wasn't going to do as much work as I usually do. <laughs> and I made a lasagna um, for my husband and the kids. And... I mean, my lasagna is pretty decent. I don't, you know, I wouldn't say I'd like win a taste test for lasagna, but I put a good effort into it and, and it turned out pretty well. So I don't think that's how that. taste tests work, Sharon. No? No, taste tests are like, um, is the store brand lasagna or homemade okay. lasagna? Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't win an award for it. <laughs> I wouldn't win an award for it, no. No. <laughs> okay. But may, I think my five-year-old would give me, he'd probably give me an award. He He really likes my lasagna. He's into it. You know what's funny about that? I've been thinking about that a lot. So we have one of our questions, like, what's your favorite mom food, right? That food you crave. Yeah. Um, we're literally creating that for our kids right now. Hey, that's really cool. I never thought about that. You're so right. Are you being serious? You just said that in yeah. a, like, so condescending no, way to me. No, I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something you make. You don't know what it is. But like yeah. 20 years from now, when your son or one of your sons is on a podcast and gets asked this question, he's like, that one time, you know, there's this pandemic going on in the world and my mom made lasagna. She never cooked, but she made lasagna and I dream of that lasagna. Or, or more realistically, they're probably like, oh, you know, my mom, you know what she does a lot? She takes pizza out of the freezer and she pops it in the oven. <laughs> Dude. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a pro tip. Pro tip. Yeah. Between us as friends, Go. super secret. Yep. Um, English muffin pizzas. So my wife and I, we were making them when we were like dating and we were single people. They are the, and like, look, we're still supporting our local pizza shop, but and getting takeout, but we shouldn't, but could not, I want these people to stay employed, but yeah. English English muffin pizzas are the bomb or frozen bagel. I mean, defrosted, but bagel pizzas are really good too. You know, there's a company they're called Bagel Bites. It's got them. Yeah. Probably the second most addictive song after the Cars for Kids song. Pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening, pizza for supper time. Oh, yeah. When you can I, eat bagels, da, 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 you can eat them anytime. <laughs> Don't know why I know that song. It's in my subconscious. Uh, can I just say, and they'll never sponsor us now, but I hate bagel bites. I think they taste like crap. There's, there's it's so much better when you make it yourself. Yeah, All right. So here's how there's like two ways I know, even though I don't live in the city, like you cool people who pay far too much rent, the mm-hmm. two things I knew. That made me feel like I live in New York and I live in Connecticut now, but like I still say I'm, I live in New York um, is one. I'm a total snob about pizza and bagels. I it's garbage outside of the tri-state area, but two and the other one's like just death staring people who walk too slow. But yeah, like pizza and bagels here are like so much better than anywhere else in the world. Full stop. Seriously. I know. I hope that continues after all this blows over. Yeah, totally. will. Okay. 
Last question. Ready? Oh, no. What does being a model minority mean for you? Oh, why'd you have to ask? I just wanted to talk about food. It was easier. Um, you know, it's like, so um, I, I actually researched the term when we came up for the name of our show, and it was around the Reagan era. It came out as kind of a way to divide the races of, ooh, the good ones, the Asians versus the Indian, or sorry, the Asians versus Hispanics or Blacks or whatever. Um, I can say that. Can I say that? Yeah, I can say that. Um, my brother-in-law's Black. I can say that. Um <laughs> My 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 podcast co-host's husband is black. Can I yeah. say that? It's like that's like when someone it's like, oh yeah, I have one Chinese friend. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that that means you know everything about us, right? Yeah, clearly. Um <laughs> we've talked about this, right? Like in terms of like guests and like we have white we have like white male guests. Yeah. It's it's about rejecting what the world expects of you. It's you don't, Hey, you're Indian. You don't have to be good at math. Mm-hmm. You, you can, you can be a screenwriter. You know, it's like be my, my late uncle, um, uncle Joe, I have an uncle Joe. <laughs> um, uh, he used to tell his kids and he told me and my, my older sister, like do whatever you want in this world, just do it well. And, um, yeah, like I'm not saying, Hey, go chase your passion and be like a Broadway singer. No, don't. But, um, a model minority is someone who, just and you can still be a doctor hey indian or chinese person you can totally be a doctor or a lawyer but like do what you want to do and don't care about what the world says i don't care if you're a white male or a lesbian black um geriatric patient <laughs> like just do what you you be you i think that you be you that's being model minority that's that's what it means to me so sharon yeah. what does yes. being a model minority mean to you i think I mean, I would completely agree with that. I think, you know, when I was growing up, my dad used to tell me that I would have, even before I opened my mouth. So as soon as someone walked into a room and looked at me, he always said that I'd have two things that would all automatically give me a disadvantage. And one was that I was female. And the second was that I was Asian. And, you know, honestly, I'm 40 years old now looking back on that. I'm like, how the heck could you tell your daughter that? But growing up with that in my mind set a really high standard and also made me realize that I had to stand out and be different, be special, be unique in some ways because I knew and I recognized that being an American um, and living in this country, I was going to have to face a lot of those prejudices just from the way that I looked, even before they knew anything about me, right? Just like looking at the color of my skin and my gender. Um, And I think that being a minority kind of means that, yes, you carve your own path, you do your own thing, but that you create the space for the people that follow you. Because I can tell you now, like kind of looking back, I don't think that's true anymore. Like, I don't think that if I walked into a room today, people really would look at me the same in, in that way. Whereas 20 years ago or 30 years ago when I was growing up, that was definitely the truth. And so it's, it's kind of our jobs too, to kind of pave the way to provide these opportunities and different ways of thinking for everybody else, yeah. which is the premise of this show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I, I think we've solved all the problems in the world. I think so. Think? Yeah. I think so. And I've finished my glass of wine. So I think we've done that in good time as well. Nice. Well, and, um, Look, the solution is uh, not eternal. I think you literally have to listen to this podcast every week to, 
to get your regular dose of the solution of minorities. <laughs> <laughs> to continue with um, your enlightenment grasshopper. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, like we've we've done how many? Probably almost tomorrow we'll hit probably like eight episodes um, recorded, and this will yep. be weekly. And I'm some of these conversations have been so well all of them all of them have been really good i shouldn't say that except for that one guy no um i can't wait for people to hear this and join the conversation and one day we'll have a website that sharon and i can agree on and mm-hmm. that we'll be able to share that long. too yep as a finisher. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. uh yeah um we hope you'll tune in um but even if you don't we hope you're staying safe healthy and sane out there And thank you to Done For You Podcast for sponsoring this episode. All right. Have a good night. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned, or to join the conversation, visit monmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all model minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.